Well, it's nine o'clock, so it's good to be back. Um, Pam and I are not the only ones uh, in our body who has dealt with sickness in the last year, year and a half. Um, but I have a little better understanding of what everybody else has gone through. And we had it very lightly compared to others. Um, so God has been very gracious to us. Uh, Jimmy and, uh, and Scott's talk yesterday on um, Eric Liddell, Little and uh, his kindness. And it just made very clear to us over the last 10 days uh, of the kindness of this body. Um, Pam and I didn't make a single meal in 10 days. Uh, you guys cared for us in a, in a beautiful way. Um, people that would email and text and call and check on us every single day. Um, just we can't be thankful enough for what you guys do for us. Um, so we are we are grateful for you. Um, so we are back. Uh, thank you to Scott for uh, covering for me last Sunday. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, as you know, we're basic, and I, I've been kind of covering a couple different topics over the last couple of Sundays, and got a couple more uh, topics coming. And I've been kind of come, trying to come up with a title for this mini series, really. And I think I finally came up with it: uh, "Hard Issues Through Two Worldviews." Um, because all these things are things that are going on in our society. All these things are things that, if you spend any time outside of the church you come into contact with something that has to do with the things that we're talking about we too, we talked about the the sufficiency and uh, the authority of the scriptures on the first sunday um, and then two sundays ago um, we talked about what race is and from a secular worldview what race is and then from a biblical perspective what what is race and today we're stepping into the topic of racism um, and I'm going to be honest. Um, I mean, well, let's back up a quick refresher. So we are all on the same page of the secular worldview of race. And I kind of went into a part of this, but not the whole thing. Part of this is, is simply, and we've experienced this, especially here in the United States. Um, race is simply the color of one's skin in the United States is what it amounts to. Um, outside of the United States, it's probably, um, more focused and I haven't spent much time outside the United States but in conversations with people that have it's more around ethnic groups or people groups um, but in the United States it's very very focused on color of skin but the interesting thing is and I didn't cover this but you need to understand this it's color of skin and political view in the United States because there's a lot of people who have very different color of skin than we have that have very similar beliefs that we have that are treated like we are. Um, they're, they're treated as not part of their group because their political views are different. So when we deal with race in the United States, we're dealing with race, the color of your skin and your political view. Um, so we have to, when we talk about race in the United States, we have to make sure to bring that caveat in that the political view of the, the African American, of the Asian person, of the Hispanic person is not just their color of their skin, but also their political view affects how they're, how, which category they're put in as far as secular race. 
Now, the biblical worldview, and this is, this is where, as Christians, and, and I give you a little bit of the secular stuff just to kind of help you to understand why I'm going where I'm going on the biblical side of this. The, the secular side is skin color for the most part. On the biblical side, physically, we are one blood. Acts 17, 26 says, He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So we are one blood. It doesn't matter what the color of skin is, what the shape of your eye is, how much fat is in your face. It doesn't matter what you look like. We are all made from Adam originally, Noah secondarily, but we are all one body. We are, we are all one human race. It's, I have these conversations with my students. There's only one race. It's the human race. But spiritually, there are two races. There's the old man and the new man. There's the, the humanity of Adam's race, and then there's the humanity of the redeemed race through Christ. And spiritually, there is a separation there. But that separation go, is solely a spiritual issue. It's not a physical issue. And I'm going to jump real quick. I want to, we're going to be spending some time in Ephesians today. So you may want to turn to Ephesians because that's where majority of our lesson is going to come from. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And then verse 24, put on the new self, which in likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness in the truth. So for the, from the biblical perspective, there is only physically one race of people, those, those Adam's race, those that have come from Adam from Noah's family. Spiritually, there's the old man and the new man. And this is going to be a repetitive theme, uh, repetitive th- repetitive theme as we move through today so this old man new man is where we're going okay so let's talk about secular the secular worldview regard to racism now it's interesting because over the last two years critical race theory and intersectionality have really um, made inroads i shouldn't say it this way Uh, It's made inroads into every facet of life. If you go into the business world, it's big in the business world. And it's been in the educational world for a long time. It's just become very obvious in the last two years. Um, In our governments, people don't realize a lot of the social programs that we've seen since 1960 have been built from the foundations of critical race theory. So what is critical race theory and intersectionality? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. In 40 minutes, I cannot give you a good understanding of critical race theory and intersectionality. It's impossible. There have been decades and decades and decades of academic writing, well, academic writing, um, on critical race theory. But I want to point you to two books that are going to be very, very helpful for you if this is something you really want to flesh into. The first one uh, by Vody Balkum called Fault Lines, the Social Justice Movement and Evangelicals' Looming Catastrophe. This is a good book for, to get you started, okay? So because what a lot of these, these two guys, Vody Balkum and Owen Strahan, catch a lot of flack because of 
their interpretation of a lot of things. But I want you to I want to help you to understand something. What these two guys do is they go back to the authors of critical race theory, of critical theory, of intersectionality. They go back to Abram X. Kendi. They go back to Robin D'Angelo. They go back to Macintosh. And they use their writings to explain what they're talking about. So they're not saying, well, this is what they're meaning. They're saying, this is what they said. This is what that means. Now, this one is a good general getting started of understanding of what it's about. Um, Vody Balkum tells his story in the first couple of chapters in here, which helps you to understand that he's not somebody who came from suburbia who is trying to explain what's going on. He is somebody who has lived this lifestyle from growing up and that he has experienced this stuff firsthand. So this is a good place to start. I just finished this book this week, Christianity and Wokeness by Owen Strand. You want an excellent, in-depth understanding of what critical race theory and intersectionality and how it affects the church, this is the book for you. So these two books, I would highly recommend you spend time reading. Yes, they're pretty, pretty substantial books, but I'm telling you, if you want a true understanding of what this is and how we respond biblically to these things, these two books will be a tremendous help for you, okay? Now, I need to give you some basics of critical race theory and inter intersectionality. I am not going to be completely, uh, I'm not going to be able to give you a complete thing on this, okay? It's not possible. But I do need you to understand some of the basic tenets of this belief system. It is a belief system of this belief system so that you can understand where we're going in Scripture to help explain what the answers are to this belief system, okay? So here's just some, some basics of critical race theory. And denies objective truth. They do not believe there's a such thing as right and wrong, except that they think that they're right and they think that you're wrong. But they deny objective truth. There's no way to physically prove what is true in their perspective. Um, they say it's not personal. Racism is not personal anymore. You are personally not racist, not necessarily. But it's a systemic problem that the system is racist. And just because you're white, you're racist. And you don't have any control over that. What's interesting is they still use, this is the vocabulary they use, oppressor, oppressed. Okay, the oppressor is generally white people. Oppressed um, is anybody who is not white, generally. But it gets, gets into a much broader context from that. It includes um, sexual orientation in that. It includes, um, let's see, uh, Christian versus non-Christian. So intersectionality has to do with how many of these different buttons you can tick off. Okay, are you black or white? I'm black, so that's one. Um, are you straight or are you gay? Well, that's one. Are you transgender? That's another one. Are you not a Christian? You're something else. That's another one. And because I've got all of these buttons ticked, that means I have more, I, I'm more, my opinion's more valuable than yours because of that. That's kind of the idea, okay? It's not a fixable program, okay? So in other words, they're not trying to fix anything. They're trying to, they're, they're trying to create revolution. They're trying to change everything. They don't think that the current system can be fixed. They don't think that because the system in the United States is systemically racist, the, it can't be fixed, so it has to be destroyed and replaced. That's what they're saying. 
Um, and this is interesting, people don't understand this. Racist ideas are acceptable if they're purported by the right person and basically the person that has the right color of skin. Okay, how do I know this? Well, let's, I'm gonna use, I don't, I'm not gonna use a lot of quotes from these CRT people, but this one just, if you can't see it through this one statement, then you're really not paying attention. Abram X. Kendi, who is, who wrote a book on how to be anti-racist, okay? He, he did a tweet on Twitter that says this, the only way for you to deal with past discrimination is current, present, and future discrimination. So racism's okay because it's the only way to deal with other racism. Okay, that's kind of what we're dealing with when we're dealing with critical race theory. This is all under the guise of social justice. Okay, and we're going to deal with that specifically. There is no forgiveness. There is no repentance in critical race theory. If you are white, you are racist. It's more of an addiction style. You will constantly fight it. You will constantly deal with it. There will be ever, never be any solution to it. You will constantly have to fight your racism. So it's, and, and let's just be honest, what this boils down to is this is works-based righteousness. You can never do enough to be good enough to not be racist, is the idea. It's an eternal, from a, from a, from a um, uh, Southern Catholic, uh, uh, Roman Catholic perspective, it's eternal penance. There's nothing you can do to not be racist. And this is the big thing, and I'm going to keep coming back to this. There is no forgiveness in critical race theory. None. It's an eco economic system. It's a religious system. It's a social and educational system. And when I say economics, this is what I mean. They think and this is all built off of Marxism, and, you've, and, and they go through the specifics of how all of that comes through, through history over the last 50 years. But this is the interesting thing. They think that anybody who has money needs to have their money taken away and given to people who are poorer than them. But people like Robin DiAngelo, who, who says that capitalism is a bad thing, um, charges $40,000 for every speaking engagement. Abram X. Kendi charges about $35,000 for every speaking engagement. Yet they think that you should give up your money to help somebody else. But they're charging this kind. Do you see the hypocrisy in critical race theory, okay? So the whole point of this is claims, they claim to want to provide unity, but in reality, all that they provide is divides, is division, okay? So from a biblical perspective, how do we answer this? Okay, because this is where we have to go. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you've experienced. Please hear me clearly on that. Doesn't matter what you've experienced. This is truth. We've already determined that week two in week one. This is truth. So this has to have an answer for what we're talking about. So we're going to have to come back here. But why do we need to do this? Second Corinthians chapter 10. This is why. We need to do this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, 
and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That is why this is important. You have to, uh, 2 Timothy reminds us, we have to have an answer for those who ask us of the hope that's in us. And there are answers to this, okay? So like I said, I can't cover everything about critical race theory in 40 minutes and, okay, 30 minutes. Um, but what I want to really focus on are three things and three things only. And I'm going to give you the three, and then we're going to go through each one. Number one, God's view of true justice. They say social justice is the solution. Let's see what God has to say about justice. Number two, God's, true, God's view of true guilt. According to critical race theory, because we're white, we're guilty. Even if we've done nothing racist, we're still guilty. What is God's view on that? Oh, the other side of that too is if you're not white, you're not guilty no matter what you've done. Okay, so that's why we have to talk about what God's view of true guilt is. Number three, God's view of true unity. So these are the things that I'm gonna try to cover in the next 30 minutes. So these first two points, I'm gonna be doing kind of a whirlwind tour all right, so please bear with me as we go through. And then the third point, God's view of true unity, we're going to spend that time in Ephesians. So I told you to turn to Ephesians at the beginning. That's where we're going to end, okay? So God's view of true justice. Now, I'm going to read, I'm not going to read all of these verses, but I'm going to give you um, a pretty substantial list of verses dealing with God's justice, okay? And this is specifically in relation to what we're talking about versus social justice or the, the belief of, excuse me, the, the belief that some are guilty, some are not, that there is justice for some but not for others, which is what critical race theory is all about. Okay, let's li listen to what Scripture says about this. Leviticus 19.15, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Uh, Deuteronomy 1.17, you shall, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall bear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. Deuteronomy 10.17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Deuteronomy 16, 19. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. 2 Chronicles 19, 7. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. Are you hearing a common theme? Hearing a common theme? Job chapter 13, verses 8 and 10. Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? He will surely reprove you if you secretly show partiality. Proverbs 24, 23. 
These are the sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judgment is not good. And then 28.21 To show partiality is not good because for a piece of bread man will transgress. So you're like, okay, well that's the Old Testament. Well, let's jump to the New Testament and go from there. Acts 10.34 I'm most certain this is Peter speaking when he was this is important because he's gone to the Gentiles, a Jew, gone to the Gentiles. He's eating a meal with them. He sees the Holy Spirit poured out on them. And this is his phrase. I now most certainly understand that God is not one to show partiality. Romans 2.11, Galatians 2.6, Ephesians 6.9, Colossians 3.25. For there is no partiality with God. 1 Timothy 5.21 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. And finally, James 2.9 And this, is, this, is, this ties it all together, folks. This ties it all together. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted of the, by the law as transgressors. Critical race theory, first and foremost, produces partiality. We want to talk about racism. Let's use the biblical term. Remember last time I said we need to get rid of those secular terms and start using biblical terms. The biblical term is partiality. Partial to someone based off of their skin color. Partial to someone based off of their socioeconomic status. Partial to someone based off of what country they come from. It doesn't matter what the reason is that you're being partial. If you're being partial, James 2.9, you are sinning. And this is hard because it's easy to look at somebody and say, oh, you're being partial because you're, 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 you're treating that person differently because of the color of their skin. Or it's even easy to point it to them and say, oh, you're being partial against them because of their socioeconomic status, the kind of how much money their family makes, what part of town they live in. We hear, Pam and I hear this all the time in reference to our family. He lives on the other side of the tracks. You guys have heard that. Are you being partial to somebody else? And, and this is not, please understand me, I said this before, um, two weeks ago. This is not what they are doing that is wrong. The problem is not that critical race theory exists. It is a problem, but it's not the problem that we are called to solve. What we're called to solve is to make sure that we are not being partial. That's what we are called to focus on and to have an answer for those who, who see the hope that's in us. This is number one. God is not partial. True justice does not look at somebody else's skin color, does not look at somebody else's socioeconomic status, what part of the tracks they're from, or what church they go to. Important. Number two, God's view of true guilt. And I'm going to spend a couple minutes in Romans. Because it has to come back to this. <clears throat> if you remember from last time, 
<clears throat> I spent some time actually in this chapter, Romans chapter 3, last time talking about what race is. Okay, remember the, the differentiation through Scripture is, is not black and white, it's Jew and Gentile. But the principle doesn't, isn't different for us. The principle falls true across the board. Remember, we're talking about partiality, period. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Verse 10. For it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. So it doesn't matter what you think is wrong. It doesn't matter that you feel like you have been offended. You are guilty before God. You may not be guilty of partiality, but I'm sure there's something else that you have offended God with. Partiality is one in a list of a myriad of sins that separates us from God. And if you don't understand that, then you cannot get into this discussion because until you understand that you are not able to stand on your own feet before God because of your sin, it doesn't matter what other sins have already been committed against you. Because you are guilty. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Verse 23, and I'm reading through verses you probably have memorized. For all have sinned. Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor. From Landis, China Grove, Kannapolis. All have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. Chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, unworthy, unjustified, not worth anything, he died for us. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. Every single one of us deserves to die in God's economy. But... <laughs> Great word, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life. Well, so in God's eyes, who's guilty? In God's eyes, who's guilty? All, all of us are guilty. Doesn't matter of your skin color your financial status, your social status, your political status, we're, we're all guilty. And, and I, I can't, I didn't write this down, but I, I can't stop there. I have to come back to chapter 10 because that sin, that guilty, is not a status that's permanent. Chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. But if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
You do not have to stay in guilt. You do not have to stay in sin. And it's only through the blood of Christ. And I read this this week and I was like, you know, it depends on which church you go to. Sometimes they spend all of their time talking about the cross, which is a good thing. We need to understand that our, our sins were paid for when Christ died on the cross. But they never mention the empty tomb. Because without the empty tomb, the cost that was paid would never have been accepted. Christ rose from the dead, and because he rose from the dead, it sealed our payment. You can't have the cross without the empty tomb. You have to have both. And you can't have the tomb without the cross. So don't forget that. So somebody says, okay, Greg, you're saying we need to ignore the things about us that are different. That's not what I'm saying. We don't ignore the God-given diversity that he, and we remember last time we talked about the DNA of Adam and Eve and the diversity that can come from just two parents with DNA and how many different children with different skin tones, just skin tone alone, can be produced from two parents. That's God-given diversity. But we don't, as, as fallen people, we tend to focus on the things that make us look or sound different, and we don't focus on the things that should be uniting us. Now, before I get into Ephesians, I want to jump to Revelation real quick because I want you to hear this. And, and I heard this to, this week for the first time. I, I've probably read this chapter, Re Revelation chapter 21, um, 100 times in, in my lifetime. But thinking about it from this perspective of God's created diversity, the things that, that are not sinful, that are about us, this, our skin color, our, our ethnic, um, the things that we bring to the table from our family and our histories that are, that are good, but they're different, the things that we look and we see as different. Listen to Revelation 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God had illumined it in lamp. And its lamp is the Lamb. Here it is, listen. And the nations shall walk by its light. The nations, ethnos, people groups, will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall not be no night, and it will never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination or lying shall ever come in but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you hear it? That in the end, when the nations are brought in, their glory and their honor is brought in with them to the holy city. And in that holy city, nothing unclean will ever enter. But all of these nations are going to be bringing those, those diverse, God-glorifying things in with them. We are told that in the end, at the end, in the great city, there will be people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And we're not all going to look alike. 
We're not going to sound alike. We're not going to be dressed alike. Well, we will be in heaven, but you get the point, right? Just because things are different doesn't mean that they are sinful. So don't forget that as we start this conversation, quick conversation on unity. Okay? That is not what we're talking about. In our fallen nature, we tend to look look at things that separate us. In our redeemed nature, sorry, in our redeemed nature, we need to focus on the things that unify us. So hopefully, hopefully you're in Ephesians, and we're going to do a whirlwind through Ephesians here, but I want to read one verse in Romans because this is, the, this is important for us to remember as we journey through Ephesians. We've already talked about true guilt and, and the forgiveness of that true guilt. Chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Keep that in, the, in your mind as we run through Ephesians. Now this is, this is going to be quick, so stick with me here. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1. Now we're going we're gonna to fly through Ephesians chapter 1 here. Um, verse 4. What are we? Holy and blameless. What else are we? Right at the beginning. He chose us. We are chosen. And because we are chosen, we are holy and blameless. Verse 5, what are we? What? Predestined. Predestined. We are sons and daughters. We are adopted. Verse 7, what are we? Redeemed. Okay? Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, slave and free. We are chosen, predestined, redeemed. Also in verse 7, he forgave us forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 8, he gave us, sorry, not verse 8. Verse 11, apologies. Verse 11, we have an inheritance. Okay, we're not just second-hand citizens we are one of the sons that receives an inheritance one of the daughters that receives an inheritance verse 12 I'm sorry verse 13 we are sealed in him okay the idea is this the only person that can break a seal is the person whose symbol is on the seal well if he sealed us nobody else can break it Romans chapter 2, I'm sorry, let me bounce back here real quick, because uh, I want you to, I want to read this for us. Romans 2, 9, and we, we talked this verse uh, last time, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, for the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good first to the Jew and also for the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Okay, are you, are you seeing it? It doesn't matter who we are, where we're from, what color our skin are, what shape our eyes are. It doesn't matter that we are part of his body. 
There's a unity here. Let's keep going. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship. And, of course, people are now saying, okay, we get the point that we're part of the family. What does this have to do with unity? I'm glad you asked. Therefore, remember that you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Okay? It's the idea of there's still this, this separation, Jew and Gentile. Remember, verse 12, chapter 2 that you were at that time, five things, separate from Christ. Okay? That's separation from God, right? Separation from Christ. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Separated from people. Strangers to the covenant of promise. Having no hope, number four, and without God in the world, number five. Things that we focus on, right? Things that separate us, right? verse 14 13 and 14 but now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought close by the blood of Christ here it is for he himself is our peace there's nothing that we can do in the world that will bring peace It's not our job to bring peace. It's his job to bring peace. It's Christ's job to bring peace. Not us. There's nothing that we can do of our own. The work that we do, the conversations that we have by ourselves, there's nothing we can do to bring peace. It's Christ who brings peace. Continuing in verse 14. He brings peace our peace who made both groups into one broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his in his flesh the enmity his death on the cross destroyed the separation between all of the people he made those two groups the the we's and the them's into us Verse 15 finishes that he makes two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Do people in our world truly want peace? I believe they do. Those that are not trying to stir things up really do want peace. Do we want peace? Yes, we want peace. Can we bring peace of ourselves? No, but Christ has already established peace, and only through him can true peace come to those that are outside of the body. Without Christ, they will never know peace. So what do we do? They have to meet him. And so what does this look like? If we continue on through Ephesians chapter 4, what does this unity look like? Chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. And it's, it's amazing to me because Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 is the theology, Paul's theology 
of Christ and, and, and the body. And then you get into chapters 4, 5, and 6. And then you start to see what this looks like in practical life. So you want to, how do we establish peace? How do we allow Christ to establish peace in us and through us to those who need to know that peace? Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind. Here it is, Scott, Jimmy. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love just as Christ loved you. Verse 6. I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 12. <clears throat> He's telling us that this is not easy, folks. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the worldly forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Therefore, stand firm. He's telling us twice. It means something. Verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit with this view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Are you praying for our black brothers and sisters? Are you praying for our Hispanic brothers and sisters? Are you praying for our, our Catholic, those that do believe who Jesus Christ is and believe, Episcopal, this isn't just grace, saints, folks. Verse 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Peace, true peace, true unity only comes through Christ. Not through any of the works that we do. The only work that we can do that can truly provide peace to those around us is to share Christ. That's the only thing that can bring them peace. Look to the one who unites us and gives us peace. Let's pray. Father, your word is so full and so rich. And so clear. Those that choose to ignore your word are doing it of their, their own frustration and their own punishment. Because you are clear about partiality. You are clear about unity through Christ. Father, pray that those of us that have sat through this hour will be very honest with ourselves about our own partiality we'll be honest with ourselves that we've tried to do it on our own help us to trust you to share you to help bring peace to those that are around us and that peace can only be given by you in jesus name amen